good to be with you all this morning. Thank you for being part of our service today. As some of you know, this is my son Trey right here. Yeah. He's our youngest son. He is the creative of the family. He is the one that I go to anytime I need some creative help, especially when it comes to the areas of media. He has a lot better knowledge of media than I ever have or ever will. And I realized this about a year ago with Trey, how much, uh, well, let's just be honest, how much smarter he was than I am in some areas. That's kind of a weird thing as parenting when you suddenly realize like your kids are passing you in knowledge. And that's Trey did that about a year ago when he was 17. And so we were watching a movie, actually we were watching a series, and uh, we got done with one of the episodes, and he started talking about all the things that he saw in the episode. I'm sitting there going, I didn't see any of that. I'm like watching at one dimension, and Trey's going 30, 50, 60 feet below, and he's talking about different color themes throughout the episode. I'm like, I didn't see that. He's talking about subplots. I didn't see any of that. He's talking about character development, and I didn't see any of that. So I've had, it's, been, it's kind of fun for me to watch TV with him, or movies especially, because he sees things I never do. He's teaching me how to see sub-stories, which is kind of fun. So actually, literally this week, I said to him one day, I said, okay, Trey, what is the point of characters in movies, prominent characters who have a big role, but you know absolutely nothing about them? I said, what's the point of that? Why do you have a character that might have a name, but you know nothing about them, but they're on stage quite a bit? So he had to think for a minute, and he came back with a great answer. He said, sometimes you have that person show up strictly for curiosity. It makes you wonder, who is this person? So the second reason is because sometimes it sets you up for the sequel. It sets you up for the next episode. That's a good answer. And when he said that, I thought about Thomas and the, one of Jesus' disciples. Here he is, this big character in the New Testament. He's one of the 12 disciples. And yet you know nothing about the guy. All that you know is he's a disciple, he's been following Jesus for three years, and he's a twin. That's the only information that you're really given until he has a crisis of faith, and suddenly you learn a lot about him. But actually what's the most important about Thomas in the Bible is that he's set up for his sequel. His sequel of his life is everything written about Thomas that's not written in the Bible, but what he does after the Bible story about him. Thomas is going to go on to become the founding missionary in the country of India. He will be the guy that brings the gospel to India. So even though his role in the Bible is kind of small, what he does in the country of India is pretty incredible. But it's interesting that Thomas' story starts as a story of doubt. It starts with one guy saying, I'm not really sure if I believe this Jesus guy has actually risen from the dead. You don't expect some main character's story to start with doubt. But yet it is his own doubt that sets him up for the success that he's going to have later in life. It's actually his own doubt that is going to give him a relationship with God that he's not going to be able to deny. So as you know, we are in this series. We're talking about spiritual formation. We're talking about how do we center our life around Jesus. We're talking about the various practices that we do to help us become followers of Jesus. And one of the practices that we need to do is sometimes we need to doubt. 
Sometimes we need to doubt what we believe so we can find the truth. And that's exactly what Thomas does in John 20. Some of you might remember the story. Here's the day that Jesus is resurrected from the dead. In the afternoon of that day, all the disciples are locked away in the house. The doors are locked. They're kind of scared what's happening. Some of the ladies and some of the guys, they know that Jesus is resurrected, and so they're all in this house together wondering what's next. And Thomas is in there. Or Thomas is not there, and so they're in this house, and Jesus walks in, walks through the wall, shows everybody his scars, blesses everybody, and then he breathes the Holy Spirit on them, and then he leaves. A little while later, Thomas comes home, and they tell Thomas, hey, we've seen Jesus, he's resurrected. And Thomas basically says, I don't believe any of you. Basically, he says, I won't believe it until I see it for myself. Now, some people criticize Thomas. They say, why would this man doubt? Honestly, I think he's a smart guy. I think if I was Thomas, he should have doubted. That was a smart thing to do. I don't think it's very fair that we give him the narrative sometime of he's doubting Thomas because the guy is saying, I want to have my own experience with Jesus. I'm not going to believe just because you had an experience with Jesus. Now, that's actually pretty smart because considering Peter's in the room, why would you really believe Peter at that moment? You know, three days earlier, he cut off a guy's ear because he got angry. And then he also denied Jesus three times. So I think Thomas is being the smart guy saying, no, I want to experience this for myself. And I'm glad Thomas does that because he's going to have an encounter with Jesus that he will not be able to deny. See, sometimes doubting is good. Sometimes doubting is exactly what you need to do. See, I was raised in a Christian family. I was raised in a Christian culture. I was raised kind of in an honor culture. Back in my day, the part of you wanted to be respected in society, you participated in an honor culture. That made, meant you didn't make waves. If your parents told you to believe this, you just believed it because you wanted to be respectful in society. And that's pretty much what I did my whole life. I took my parents' religion, I took their faith, and I just assimilated into my life. But the problem was that wasn't my faith. That wasn't my relationship with Jesus. And that became very, very evident in my early 20s. Because around the time of my early 20s, I began to have a crisis of my own faith. I began to doubt because here I am, I'm 21 years old, I grew up in the church, I went to Christian schools my whole entire life, but now suddenly I'm dealing with a bunch of unwanted sexual desires. Not only am I dealing with unwanted desires, but I'm also doing the things that I don't want to do. And also I'm recognizing that the faith that I have has absolutely no power to get me to stop or to change anything in my life. Suddenly the faith that I inherited from my parents did not have power to answer my questions. It didn't have power to rescue me from what I was doing. And it didn't have any ability to answer my questions. So I began to doubt But it's a good thing I doubted because that led me to an authentic relationship that I have with Jesus today. But it doesn't happen immediately. And it didn't happen for Thomas immediately either. He actually had to wait a week from the time he said, I don't believe any of you guys. I need to see it for myself. And I like that. I like the fact that he had to wait a week. Because there's been times I've had to wait a week or a year or two years. And a lot of you know what it's like to wait. A week kind of seems easy. But Thomas is waiting. 
Do you know what I also love about that? It shows that Jesus wasn't frazzled by the fact that Thomas was doubting. Jesus didn't go, oh no, Thomas is doubting. I better run over there really quickly and make sure he can see. No, Jesus pulled back for a week. Let Thomas sit there for a week. Let him struggle right now with that. Because doubt is good for us. But you need to be very careful with doubt. Doubt has a first cousin called deconstruction. You need to be careful with these two things because doubt and deconstruction are incredibly powerful. And anytime there's something powerful that could change your life in a good way, it could also change your life in a very negative way. See, deconstruction of your faith has become kind of popular in our culture lately, and I think it's a good thing. There's a lot of Christian leaders who are saying, no, don't deconstruct, and I say it's a good thing. Because if you can deconstruct your faith, in other words, take it apart to understand it, to lead you into greater truths, that is a win for everybody. I like doubt. I like deconstruction. And it helped Thomas tremendously. But I need to give you three pieces of advice from A.J. Sabota. A.J.'s from Portland. He's a pastor in Portland. So if anybody's going to understand deconstruction and countercultural, it would be A.J., he gives you three points that are very important to understand. If you are in doubt or you're deconstructing your faith to figure things out, number one, be careful. If you enter into doubt or deconstruction because you want to destroy your faith, that actually could happen. If your goal is to destroy your faith because you're upset, be careful that could happen. Or two, if your goal in deconstruction is because you want to get whatever you want and you want to ignore the Bible, be careful because you might end up there and also regretting some of your decisions. But if your goal of deconstruction and your goal of doubt is to find the truth, go for it. If you are looking for the truth, sometimes the best thing is to doubt or to look at your faith and say, why do I believe this? Or why don't I believe that? Because that's going to lead you on an incredible journey. See, the, the faith that my parents handed me was beautiful. The Jesus they handed me was beautiful. The education I got was beautiful. The, the formation I had in the church was beautiful. But the problem is, along the way, I picked up a lot of stuff that had nothing to do with the way of Jesus. There's a lot of stuff that I learned from my culture that had nothing to do with Jesus. It was actually legalism. I was raised in a very legalistic culture. Even though they knew Jesus, I was assimilated into a culture that kind of believed that God really wasn't on my side. By the time I was 21, I had a pretty deistic view of God. I kind of thought God kind of got things started, let me on my way, and my best plan in my early 20s was try to avoid God. Because if I could stay away from him, maybe he wouldn't notice me so much. And that's not healthy. That needed to be deconstructed in my faith for the goal that my faith could be reconstructed so I could walk away with a faith that was my own. But also in finding the truth, I would find the freedom to walk free from the shame and the disappointment that I had experienced in my life. But the starting point is you must have an authentic relationship with Jesus Christ. I'm going to throw in an A.J. Sabota quote. He's my favorite right now. He says, To struggle with one's faith is often the surest sign 
that we have one. If you're struggling with your faith right now, that's a sign that you have one. And I want to tell you three things that I know, I know that I know that I know will happen. If you're struggling with your faith and you're seeking to find the truth, I will tell you three things I'm positive that will happen. Number one, God will see you. He will look for you and he will find you and he will show you the same compassion that he showed Adam and Eve when he found them in the garden. God will look for you and find you. The second thing I'm positive about is that Jesus will encounter you. That day Thomas said, no, I have to have that same experience with Jesus that you had. And Jesus gave that to Thomas. Because Jesus all wants every one of us to have an encounter with him. John 20 is all about Jesus will do anything to help you believe in him. And the third thing that I'm confident in is that the Holy Spirit will transform your life as he leads you into truth. You can bank on that if you are discouraged right now, if you're struggling with your faith, that God will see you, Jesus will encounter you, and the Holy Spirit will transform your life. I think this has played out really well in the Old Testament with the character of Moses. Some of you know Moses, the Moses story, the little boy that was raised... uh, um, I'm going the wrong story. You know the story of Moses when he's an adult. He's tending sheep in the desert. I just skipped 30 years quickly. So Moses is tending sheep in the, in, the, in the wilderness, and suddenly he sees the Lord appear to him in a bush. This bush is burning, but it's not devouring the bush. And he hears the Lord cry out from the voice to him. And basically God comes to Moses and says, Moses, I have a plan for your life. My plan for your life is I'm going to send you to Egypt to rescue the Israelites. And here Moses is witnessing one of the best miracles in the Bible, and his response to God is basically, no, I'll pass. Pick someone else. It's kind of a surprising answer to give to God, but you know, Moses wasn't really being a jerk. Moses just felt incredibly disqualified. So Moses comes up with five really good reasons to give to God of why he shouldn't go and help God rescue the Israelites. And I love those five reasons because you know what? I've given those same five reasons many times before. And my guess is maybe one or two of you in here have given those five reasons to God before. So Moses comes up with these five good reasons. And what's so interesting about this story is that Moses is actually witnessing a miracle by that bush. And he's hearing the voice of God You would think seeing a miracle and hearing a God would be enough to convince him that, hey, I'll do whatever this God is asking me to do. But sometimes your doubt and disappointment will keep you away from doing what God has called you to do. It's easy to be like Moses. It's really easy to see God do miracles, but yet you shy back and you say, but I don't know if it could ever happen for me because I actually feel pretty disqualified. And I love what Moses does in this story. He questions God. The first thing that he says, now let me read the story of Moses in Exodus 3, verse 7. So then the Lord said to Moses, I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their cries of distress because of their harsh slave drivers. Yes, I am aware of their sufferings. So I have come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and lead them out of Egypt into their own fertile and spacious land. It's a land flowing with milk and honey, the land where the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, 
Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites now live. Look, the cry of the people of Israel has reached me, and I have seen how harshly the Egyptians abuse them. Now go, for I am sending you to Pharaoh. You must lead my people out of Egypt. I love those verses. This is the compassion of God. This is a story of the Bible. From Genesis to Revelation, that God says, I see my people. I see my people in oppression. I see my people in distress. I see my people suffering, and I want to come down and rescue them. That is the theme of the Bible. You can hear God saying that right now to us, but yet we get really surprised when God says to Moses, and I'm sending you. Suddenly, like, wait a minute. I like God, that's really nice. You see people, you want to rescue them, you want to do wonderful things, but I don't know if I want to be the person that's actually going to go. That's why sometimes it's good to have your doubt encounter with God to process your doubts and lay them out before God so he can get you to the place that you can respond to your calling that he's given to you. So I love what Moses does. The first reply that Moses has is number one. He says, I'm not good enough. Genesis 3.11, Moses protested, who am I to appear before Pharaoh? Who am I to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt? I love that excuse. It's a good excuse. Pick somebody else. You'll just be disappointed in me. Moses is just basically laying out before God, saying his inadequacies. He's saying, you know, God, I don't have the ability. If you really knew what was going on in my life, you wouldn't pick me. If you really knew the desires that I have, you wouldn't pick me. But how does God respond is the beautiful part of the story. God says to Moses in verse 12, I will be with you. I'll be with you, Moses. I know you don't feel adequate, but I'll be with you. I love God's response. He says to Moses, look, your calling is not based on your ability, Moses. Your calling is based on my ability. It's based on my ability to rescue the people. You don't have to worry about your lack of ability. See, God's plan to rescue is always based on the fact that he will be with you. It's interesting, it's the exact same words that Jesus used when he gave the Great Commission said, I'll be with you. It's the exact same words that Haggai used when he told the Israelites to rebuild the temple. I will be with you. You think right there Moses would have said, okay, done. If you'll be with me, I'll do it. But no, Moses comes up with excuse number two. He says, but I don't know what to say. In other words, he doubts his capacity. He doubts the knowledge that he has. He doubts his ability again. And what does he say to God? It says, but Moses protested. What should I tell them? I think, Moses, didn't you remember God said he would be with you? But what does God say back to him? He says to Moses, I am who I am. Say that to the people. Say to the people, I am who I am. Basically, God was reassuring to Moses, saying, Moses, you need to remember who I am. I'm the one who can take care of any concerns that you have. Moses, I'm the one who's a creator of all things. I have authority over all things, so you don't have to worry because I'm the one who's doing the work. But again, that's not good enough for Moses. So Moses says, 
third objection. But what if people think I'm delusional? He says to God, he protested to God before in verse 4, verse 1, and he says, but what if they won't believe or listen to me? What if they say the Lord never appeared to you? So that's a great question. Here Moses doubts his capability, doubts he doesn't know what to say, and now he wonders, what, if the people around, what are the people around me going to say to me? Because see, so often we are more concerned about what other people think than what we think about what God thinks about us. It's exactly what Moses' excuse was, but what will other people say? But we forget the fact that in the previous chapter when God called Moses, he said to him, the elders of Israel will accept your message. See, God had already told him before he called him, there will be people that will accept your message. See, the truth is, there's always one person that's going to accept your message. There's one person that's going to get behind the calling that God has on your life. Because Moses is right, there's a lot of naysayers that are going to crit- criticize you and say no. But God's reminding Moses, you will have some people behind you. You will have a person behind you to support you. But that's also a reminder for each of us that we need to be the person behind somebody else to support them and to encourage them. To say, yes, God has called you. God has that anointing on your life. That is what you're called to do. And as the body of Christ, we need to stand behind people and encourage them and not discourage them. We need to be the encouraging voice of God to encourage people in their calling. That's what Moses needed, and that's what we as a community need to be for each other. We don't. We don't want people doubting the calling that God has given to them. So I love what God says to Moses. He says, Moses, what's in your hand? Moses said, I got a staff in my hand. And God says, throw it down on the ground. He throws it on the ground and quickly turns into a snake. Moses jumps back. God says, pick it up. Moses picks it up by a tail and it quickly turns back into a staff. Then, Moses, then God said to Moses, said, Moses, take your hand, put it in your coat. Puts it in his coat, pulls it out, white with leprosy. Put it back in your coat, pulls it out, clean. Then God says to Moses, I'll tell you what, take that glass of water, pour it on the ground, it turned into blood. God showed him signs and wonders and miracles, and God's saying to Moses, look, don't worry. People aren't going to care a whole lot about you and a whole lot about what you're saying and wondering if you're called by me when they see what I can do. The attention is going to be on God. It is not going to be on any of us when he has called you. In other words, he's saying, Moses, people are going to be watching me. Don't worry when they're watching you. But Moses comes up with excuse number four. I think Moses gets a little bit more honest with each one. Excuse number four, there's something wrong with me. He says he pleaded before God, God, I'm not very good with words. I've never been. And not now. Even though you've spoken to me, I get tongue-tied and my words get tangled. Here Moses pouring out his heart before God saying, there's something wrong with me. And there's always been something wrong with me. That is the way my life has been going. And what does God say to Moses again? says, I'm going to be with you. That's all you need to know, Moses, is that I'm going to be with you. 
you'd think after these four questions and answers that Moses would say, okay, I'll go now. But Moses saves the best for last. He says, I don't want to do it. He pleaded with the Lord and he said, send somebody else. After all his dialogues with God, after everything he saw, he said, send somebody else. And I think this is an amazing conversation. And I love the fact that Moses is honest and he lays out before God every reason he doesn't want to, every excuse that he has. And he's not pleased with God's response. What Moses wanted, he wanted God to say, okay, I'll take away all of your inadequacies. You can't speak, oh, I'll take away that disability. You're worried about what other people say, oh, I'll just take that away from you. That's what Moses wanted. Moses wanted himself to be so empowered that he won't have to lean on God. But instead, what God comes in, he says, Moses, all of your lack doesn't matter because I will be with you. But that's not what Moses wants. Moses wants every single challenge and difficulty he's dealing with to go away so he doesn't have to lean on God so he can lean on himself. And God says, no, Moses, you're going to lean on me. It's interesting, God never got upset with Moses when he said, hey, there's something wrong with me. He didn't get upset when Moses said, look, I've been this way my whole entire life and I'm sick of it. He didn't get in, he didn't get in trouble. God didn't get upset with Moses when he said, I don't know what to say. He said it twice. But when God got upset with Moses, it says, then the Lord became angry with Moses. is because now Moses was doubting God's capacity. And that's when God put a stop to it. Because there's two things going on in the story. Moses is doubting himself, but at the same time, he's doubting the God who actually created him and called him. And God would listen to the doubts that Moses had about himself, but when it comes to his doubts about God, God's like, no. I am who I am. I am the one who has sent you. I am the one who's called you, and I can make up any difference, any deficit that you might have. See, the four excuses Moses gave, those were accurate. Moses had every single one of those limitations. And by design, God didn't just supernaturally, poof, take them all away. Because every limitation that Moses had was for a purpose, to make him dependent on God. And that is so often one of our biggest challenges when it comes to our relationship with God. We perseverate our whole life on God. Take this away from me. Take this away from me. I don't like this about me. Take this away. And sooner or later, our relationship with God is just, I just want you to take all this away from me instead of trusting that God says, I will be with you at all times. And I will give you the words to say. And I will give you my power and authority. But so often our lives are consumed thinking we need to be perfect and then we'll go. And God's message to Moses is, I'm perfect. I'm sending you. It's all going to work out. Our deficits don't limit God. What limits God is our doubts. That's why he invites us to give us every single one of his doubts. See, it's interesting 
That after Jesus' resurrection, when all the disciples are gathered into a house and Jesus walks through the wall, that he walks in and he blesses them and he shows the disciples his wounds. See, Thomas needed to see the wounds so he would believe that Jesus is the resurrected Messiah. But Moses needed to see something different. See, as A.J. Sabota says, he says, Jesus often shows us his wounds because he wants us to show him ours. Jesus shows us his wounds because he wants us to show him ours. And that's exactly what Moses did that day. He showed God every single wound that he had. It was in showing God his wounds that he developed the belief and the strength to believe that he actually could be God's agency to see the Israelites freed from Egypt. But he needed to learn how to relax in the care of God. Deconstruction and doubt is good. But there's a point where you need to reconstruct. And that's what God was doing in Moses' faith. He was teaching him how to learn how to relax and trust in him. See, one of the best swimming skills that you can teach a person is how to float. One of the best strategies that you can have in swimming if you get in danger is knowing how to float. But floating is counterintuitive when you're struggling. Because in order to float, you got to roll over, lay on your back, and relax. That's counterintuitive where you're in distress. That's why we always teach kids, when kids learn swimming lessons, the very first thing that you teach them, or should, is how to float. Because floating can save your life. But floating is counterintuitive because when you're in danger, you think, no, i got to be on my stomach and swim out of it. But the best thing to do is to get on your back and float. But if you're panicking, you're not going to float. See, in order to float, you have to breathe deep breaths. Because when you're floating, what keeps you floating is the air in your lungs. If you're panicking, you have those little rapid shallow breaths, (laughs) you don't fill your lungs and you're going to float, you're going to drown. In order to relax, you need to take in deep breaths. See, it's interesting in John 20, Jesus does three things. He says peace to his disciples. He shows them his wounds. And then he breathed, and then it tells us he breathed on his disciples and says, receive the Holy Spirit. That exact same language of breathing on and receiving life is used in the book of Genesis. When God created us in his image, he formed us, and then he breathed life into us. As one commentary says, the best definition of the word belief in the modern English language is relax. One of the best definitions of the word belief in modern English is to relax. Sometimes our faith needs to help us relax. To relax in the care and the trust and the sovereignty of God that he will do what he's called us to do and that he will back us up and he will give us the ability to lay on our back and to float. There's more to the story of Moses that's what's on the surface. There's a whole subtextual theme going on in the book 
of Exodus about Moses. God is calling a new generation of people to respond to the brokenness and distress in our culture, in our society. The words God spoke to Moses, he's saying to each of us, and he's saying to the church. He's saying, I've seen the oppression of my people. I've heard their cries of distress. I'm aware of people's suffering. And God's saying, I'm coming down, and I'm going to rescue them, but I'm sending you. I'm sending each one of you. We need to respond to God's call for the oppressed and the distressed and the people suffering. We need to respond. And I don't know how you're prepared to respond to God right now. Some of you may need to do a Moses and process some of your doubts with God and give him your list of doubts. Some of you may be more like Thomas, where you need to say, God, you need to prove it to me that Jesus really is the Son of God, and he'll do it for you. Because what I'm confident of, more than anything, is that each of you here online listening later in the week is that you are seen by God. God sees you, and he wants to show you the same compassion he showed Adam and Eve. And I'm confident that Jesus wants to encounter you wherever you are, whatever is going on in your life or your situation. And the third thing is, the Holy Spirit wants to transform your life. He wants to do that. And he will do that. And I'm going to add another thing I'm confident of, is that he wants to send you he wants to send you. Let's pray and let's Greg lead us in a song. Father, I thank you that you are the God of Moses. You are the God who has called us. And you're preparing us and you're equipping us and you're offering to us to doubt. God, I thank you that you are big enough that you can handle us doubting you. God, I pray for anybody here in person or listening online or listening later in the week, Lord, if they are doubting or they're discouraged or they're feeling hopeless, Lord, that you would fill them with the strength and the courage to doubt, to deconstruct. But God, I thank you that your Holy Spirit also helps us to reconstruct. Thank you, God, that you are a God who reconstructs. Lord, bless us and help us to seek you with our heart in Jesus' name. Amen.